Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we do give you thanks and praise that you helped us all find this classroom uh, and that you gathered us together now in your name. And, and we thank you, most gracious God, that you reveal to us repeatedly throughout the scriptures that you are not distant or indifferent, but that you seek us, most gracious God, and you repeatedly uh, seek to ransom and redeem us, to restore us, to call us into relationship with yourself. And we thank you that that is made known most fully and clearly in the gift of Jesus, your Son. Uh, As we reflect this morning and going forward, Lord, on uh, his teachings, on the um, stories he told, I pray, most gracious God, that you would, by the work of your Holy Spirit, give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might indeed not merely um, see their intent, their intent, but that we would respond. Be in the midst of us, I pray now, in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Hey, good morning. Uh, as, we're, as we're sort of uh, gathering and all that kind of good stuff, good to see you guys. Um, I can help but tell you, uh, Mark preached this morning on the temptation, which, he, as he mentioned, is, is our kickoff for uh, the Lenten season. But I worked... Uh, Shortly after uh, I graduated uh, from seminary, I I worked for a guy that had been a former DJ. Uh, John Burwell was his name. And it was, I mean, it was funny. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, it's still, you know, the DJ, the DJ never fully left him. We had uh, at the church, uh, we had a hit list, Um, you know, so we sort of, it was, I hope you like those 50 hymns um, because we had sort of a top 50. I mean, some of the DJ never left him. But it was funny, he told the story about when he was, um, his, uh, his star was on the rise in the, in the broadcasting world. You know, this is, this is many, gosh, many years ago. This is probably back in the, this would have been back in the 80s. Um, and, uh, all of a sudden he was, but he felt this call to not just ministry, but particularly to ordain ministry. And he was wrestling with, uh, by way of discernment, what he should do uh, about that. And he got this great offer from this uh, syndicated show up in North Carolina, uh, and he went up to meet with the guy, and the guy was, I mean, he wasn't boss hog, but it was kind of boss hoggish. You know, the guy owned all these different radio stations and basically, you know, owned the town and, and you know, all, all of that. And uh, John said as he's wrestling with this discernment, and he went up and he interviewed uh, with this guy, and uh, the guy took him on a tour of the town, and he said they drove up um, to a hill, kind of like a Red Mountain type setting up there at the Vulcan and, and, and they got out and they walked out and he said, John, all of this could be yours. Uh, <laughs> John said at that moment, I'm like, okay, Lord, thank you. Um, I hear, I hear clearly your, uh, your call to me. So that is whenever I hear the story of the temptation, I think about my buddy, John Burwell uh, and God's gracious over the head um, intervention in, in his life to say, yeah, exactly. Um, here's the temptation all too clearly. Well, we have, uh, this was, um, this was one of those things. It was a great idea and I hope it'll be a good class. Um, looking at, looking at the parables, uh, and looking at the stories, uh, that Jesus told. And uh, a little bit today, not, not too much, but as we begin, I want to do at least a little bit of introduction about the parables. Asking some of the questions, um, you know, what, what is, what is a parable? Why did Jesus, uh, use parables? How do people, uh, under, understand parables. What is our understanding of this particular vehicle for conveying truth? What's our understanding of this particular genre of parable? Let me let me ask you this: um, 
as we begin, just a couple of questions, um, and if if the crickets linger too long, I'll keep moving. But um, yeah, what what's a parable? Uh, let me let me th- let me throw that question out to you. What what is a parable? It's a story that the meaning is not necessarily on the surface mm-hmm. of the words. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I think that I appreciate that. I think that's the way a lot of us uh, understand parables. Rightly, there's you know there's a meaning there. Sometimes it's sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes sometimes not as clear. Um, uh, and sometimes some of the various as you, as you might imagine, there's lots of books on on this and and lots of different commentary on this. And one of the things that we see in the parables is sometimes uh, there is an intentional indirect communication going on. Uh, you know sometimes it's it's very it's very direct. A lot harder to miss. Sometimes it's it's more indirect uh, with with the communication. Uh, what uh, what what else about uh, about parables? Uh, or let me ask you this: Why do you think Jesus taught in parables? Oh yeah, Dorothy. Yes, lovely. I think parables were usually in a language that who, that the audience could relate to mm-hmm. topics that they could relate. To. Yeah, I think Everyday that. Life. So that's a that's a great point, and that's one of the things. As we reflect on and think about the parables, um, it, you know, in many ways, uh, one of the challenges of the parables sometimes is we think we got it. Um, we, we think we know it. Um, uh, for, for years with my son, Jack, um, whenever I'd go to tell him something, I'd always preface this by saying, I know you know this. Um, because what do you think the first words out of his mouth would be? Hey, Jack, I know, Dad. Uh, I know. I'm like, well, let me say it first. Uh, let me at least get it out of my mouth before you say. But I mean, that's one of the challenges of the parables. Sometimes they go, oh, I, I know that, um, and I know what it has to say. And and we hear people talk about this with scripture. How sometimes you'll hear a story and you think, you know what? I've been reading that for years. Uh, I've been hearing that for years, and that's the first time that I that I heard that. It's the first time that I saw that. And there's there's the it's more than a component. I was going to say there's the important component of the Holy Spirit um, that, that ultimately opens the scriptures to us, reveals the scriptures to you and to me, and enables us enables us to see. It, it's ultimately by God's grace. It's ultimately by the work of the Holy Spirit. But you're right that Jesus, and there's one of the challenges of the parables, in many ways, while they are stories that, that continue to be wonderfully accessible, um, to, to you and to me, and, and of course, wonderfully applicable to you and to me. Jesus used uh, things which were familiar to the people of his time, you know, things from agriculture or or, or shepherding or um, or weddings or you know the the customs and the religious traditions of the day. So he he used things that the people would be would be familiar with uh, that they would be able to relate to. Any anything else? Why? Uh, why why did he use parables? Yeah, Charles. Well, I, I think there's an element to the, most of the parables where they are Jesus lays them to the side of his sermon or his message or his teaching. Mm-hmm. It's uh, kind of like in the same way that Philip came alongside the Ethiopian who was reading mm-hmm. Isaiah and didn't understand it. Yes. It's it's something that comes alongside the sermon and makes it easier for at least some of the people mm-hmm. to grasp what he's really getting at. And then there are other cases, obviously, where he he, he uses it to obscure his real message right. from the people who either can't or won't accept it. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. And that's one of the things, 
uh, parables and different folks have tried to break down the parables into different types of categories. For instance, the parables of grace, the parables of judgment, the parables uh, of the kingdom. Other folks have, uh, like this is a book um, uh, by Klein Snodgrass. Um, I mean, you had me at Klein Snodgrass, right? I'm like, yeah, I got to get that one. And he's, I mean, he, uh, like, uh, there's a guy, Robert Capon, and, I've, and I actually brought this book with me. It's a, it's a great book. It used to be three books back in the day. Now it's one. Capon. Uh, uh, Capon is a provocateur, um, and this is this is a very uh, accessible uh, this is a very accessible book. His teaching on the parables, uh, and he breaks it down into the parables of grace, the parables of the kingdom, the parables uh, of judgment. And so we had this back in the day in the bookstore. We we may not anymore, but that's if you want one that's um, recording. The title is what? Oh yes. Um, Kingdom, Grace, Judgment, Paradox, Outrage, and Vindication in the Parables of Jesus. Robert Capon uh, is is the name. Um, so, yeah, exactly, for the recording. Um, but, yeah, others uh, divide them even further still. But as Charles mentioned, parables, yes, sometimes used to uh, reveal. Uh, sometimes they're used to uh, obscure to, to a certain uh, group of people. So, in some sense, you can't just say, well, it's easy, they fit uh, easily into this category. Obviously, one of the reasons is um, typically when our kids were younger, they don't say, "Hey, tell me some, tell me some facts." Um, they 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 say, "Tell me a story." Um, uh, it helps it helps to convey truth. Uh, it helps to engage. And this one of the things that I think one of the reasons for parables. You can you can take this or leave this, but I do think it it calls us to engagement. Um, with with the parable, it calls us to engagement. You have to, you know, you engage with the story. When a story is told, um, you're you're not indifferent to it. Typically, you you agree um, or you uh, disagree, or it highlights something to you that that you might not have heard, uh, or you might, quite frankly, have been resistant to, um, had it been in a in a more direct approach. And one of the things Jesus actually, in using parables, he is also at times he um, he's confronting uh, with his his parables. He's confronting his opposition. He's confronting the authorities, and he's confronting them in a way, and he's shedding light in a way that that it's absolutely clear, uh, oftentimes, who he's talking about and what he's saying. But it's kind of hard to prosecute someone for telling a story. Um, and and so in in his timing, of course, we talk about his timing. He would go to the cross, as Mark mentioned in his sermon this morning. The time would come and Jesus would leap into um, the void, um, but it was going to be at, at God's timing, not um, not at the timing, uh, not at the timing of man. I want to read a couple of uh, quotes to you as we as we continue to go forward here, uh, and um, this having to do uh, with parables. And this is something I, I really hope that you will hear. And this is a point which is made repeatedly for you and for me as we think about parables is that they are stories of intent. Um, parables are stories of intent. They're, they're not intended merely to um, entertain, uh, obviously. And actually, they're, they're more than just intended to convey um, information as well. Uh, parables are stories which are intended to convert. Um, uh, and in many ways, they're, they're, they're intended to, to challenge us, to call us um, to action and, and response. And I don't know about y'all, but uh, you know I like to I like to ruminate on things. You know, you know that's really interesting. I'll think about that. Um, you know, that's an interesting point. Uh, and and uh, but but the parables, 
Jesus is, their stories of intent, and, he, and he's calling for a response from you and from me, from us here, as these parables uh, are heard. Not just, hmm, take it under consideration, but you know what? This is, um, uh, this is not the best line to this. It's like that in, in Animal House when the professor's like, I mean this, this is my job. Uh, Jesus is like, no, I mean this. Um, what I'm telling you here, this is serious, and, and you're called to a response. Let me read you a couple of things here. The first, uh, he's uh, quoting, um, Snodgrass is quoting Kierkegaard. How often do you hear that said together? Um, uh, Snodgrass is quoting Kierkegaard. Um, Sir and Kierkegaard's treatment of indirect communication deserves careful reflection. He helps us see that direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information, especially when people think they already understand. Learning is, is more uh, than just information, particularly when people think they already understand. Again, um, you know, the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? Everybody knows what that means, right? You know, the parable uh, of the Good Samaritan, uh, the parable uh, of the sower. Oh, yeah, I, I got that. Uh, I know exactly um, what that means and all that that has to tell me. So the, the challenge is conveying information when people are sure that they already understand. People set their, and this is interesting, people set their defenses against direct communication and learn to conform its message to the channel's of their understanding of reality. So basically, what, you know, part of what he's saying there is we all listen through filters, don't we? Uh, not only do we communicate through filters, but, but you and I listen um, through filters. And even when we don't necessarily recognize that we're doing it, we're, 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 we're sifting and we're fashioning it. It's the it's sin and the fall and the problem of the human condition. We want to fashion it to what we want to hear, um, right? Uh, the, the issue that goes back to the very beginning um, indirect communication finds a way uh, in a back window and confronts what one thinks is reality. Parables are, are indirect communication. Uh, oftentimes, uh, parables are incorrect uh, communication. Parables function as a lens that allows us to see the truth and to correct distorted vision. Uh, a lens to allow us to see the truth and correct distorted vision. This is the last uh, quote I'm going to um, share with you as well. Parables usually uh, engage listeners, create reflection, and promote action. They are pointed and clenching arguments for a too often slow-minded or recalcitrant audience. Um, uh, th thanks be to God, um, slow-minded and recalcitrant. Uh, that's not us, um, but you know, it's they, they're, they're they're confrontational. They seek to goad people into the action the gospel deserves and the kingdom demands. One of the major problems of Christian churches, of Western Christianity in particular, is our stultifying passivity. The parables compel us, for Christ's sake, literally, to do something. Parables do not seek the mild morality about which Kierkegaard lamented, but radical, cross-bearing, God-imitating response worthy of the name conversion. Um, parables um, call us to... Uh, Conversion. Uh, I was at a church uh, in Great Falls, Virginia, and uh, when you'd be the preacher, you'd know because you'd be up there preaching, and all of a sudden everybody would just kind of, you know, they'd go, they'd go like that because we was all clear glass, and deer would walk by um, often, and you know when the deer walked by because everybody would just sort of, it's like here when the kids go by, everybody's just kind of like exactly, it's like 
We'll just call a timeout, um, and we'll be back. Uh, and we'll be back in, in just a moment. So, um, any any questions or comments about either of those quotes or anything I've said thus far? Yes, Ed. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, you think of parables; they're genius, mm-hmm. and of course they're given to us by the greatest genius. Yes. But they are concise. Yes. They are memorable. Right. And they are they're concise, memorable, and symbolic. Symbolic, At, yeah. yes. You can't forget them. And so you do. Yes, absolutely. That's actually a lot of what um, what you just shared is a lot of what he has to say about about parables. And, and I and I heard and I, this is a great analogy. Um, it, it's like a it's like a seed. It's like a seed that's that's planted and it continues it continues to work. It continues to germinate it continues to to grow and 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 obviously I, I certainly as a uh, as a person who is um, involved in ministry I mean that's my prayer is that that word of God would indeed be planted um, into our hearts and our minds in such a way that it uh, that it that it works on us over time that it works to shape uh, and and to fashion us because even you know, even though there's that necessity um, for conversion, there's also that necessity for that truth to continue to shape and fashion us. And actually, part of my prayers as well is that we will, um, uh, that having this in mind, that we can also begin to see uh, the gospel at, at work in the world, uh, kind of see uh, living parables, to see God as he reveals himself to us. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said this, and, I, and I've always um, uh, appreciated this, uh, and she was talking about, Basically, folks were asking her about why do you write such crazy stories? Um, you know, what, what's, you know, a good man is hard to find. I mean, it's like, are you serious? You know, what, what in the world? It's like, what goes on in your mind? Um, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you writing the types of stories that you write? And, and she said this. She said, the novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. Um, I mean, there's there's the challenge. We, we become distorted by the culture around us. Uh, and, and to be able to see, say, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't natural. Um, how do you help a people that are so accustomed to this see this as as not natural? And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to this hostile audience. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures, um, is, is what she wrote. And I, the parables aren't necessarily always shocking, but, but Jesus uses, um, Story. He uses often this uh, indirect uh, communication to, to, to be memorable, to resonate um, with people, to allow it to continue, uh, to allow it to continue to work, um, to, to basically sort of shake us and shock us out of our, our usual way of, of thinking. And often one of the things that parables have is, is reversal, right? Uh, they have surprising, uh, they have surprising en- endings. They have surprising um, heroes uh, to them. I, case in point, kind of a living parable 
Uh, when I was in, uh, and then we're going to look at Luke 18 is what we're going to do in just a minute. Um, when I was in, in college, really one of my favorite professors was Dr. Tucker. Uh, and Dr. Tucker was the chair of the English department, and he was a great guy. He was my advisor uh, and, a, and a fantastic uh, professor. And, and also, um, he was just... <laughs> He was a great human being. Uh, really was a was a wonderful. Was interested in in the cadets and and one day he came into class and he uh, put papers on the front of each desk and they and they went back to us and the immediate assumption was that it was an assignment uh, which he was handing out. But when we got um, to our desk, we read it. It was an apology, um, and 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 Dr. Tucker had written an apology to us, his students, um, and as as you might imagine. I didn't receive a lot of apologies at the Citadel, um, and so this was kind of, this was a more memorable, I'm sorry, Craig, have I hurt your feelings? Uh, that didn't really come out very often, so this was, this sort of stood out, this was, this was memorable, and doctor, and you know, and also it was, it was parabolic, it was a reversal, you know, the last uh, was becoming first, and the first was becoming last, this, there was a, there was a shift in, in power, there was a, there was a puzzling Reversal. It wasn't the student coming to the professor and saying, "I'm sorry, I didn't do my assignment, but but here's the reason behind it," or "I'm going to do better uh, on the next one." This was the professor apologizing to us, the student, and he and he said in his letter this. He said, uh, "Gentlemen," he said, "I hope I hope you can learn from this." He said, um, I, "I've allowed myself to be spread too thin." And and what had happened, not surprisingly, not only was he the chair of the English department and taught classes, but he was the head of various societies, and everybody wanted him to write a letter of recommendation to them, and he was involved in national boards, and you know, that, 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 all, of, all of that. And I remember in his letter, he, he apologized um, for his lack of organization and poverty of inspiration. His, his lack of organization and his poverty of inspiration. He said, gentlemen, I just want you to think about, and, and trying to become all things to all people, it's possible to become useful to none. Um, and, and as I say, I, it was one of those, uh, I, I remember that to this day. I mean, it was a, a wonderful uh, moment of, of humility. Uh, but, uh, and I share, this, uh, I share this with you. Um, and, and that particular encounter and that um, story as, as he conveyed it, as I convey it to you now, um, there, there's an intent uh, in that. As he came in and as he did that um, on that particular day, there was an attempt. There was an honest, sincere. Uh, there was an honest and a sincere apology, apology from him, and that was just he was a genuine person, and that was genuine from him. But there was also an element, uh, a desire for him to convert us, right? Uh, it, it was sincere, but also he had an intended desire, and that was to bring conversion um, to us. That was to help us see things differently, and it was actually a call to action as well that we might not only just see and experience this, but that it might actually get into our lives as well and affect the way that we live in relationship um, with other people. And so Jesus has these parables uh, with an intention. I'm going to pass this out. If you've got your Bible with you, awesome. Uh, if you don't, if you'll sort of, uh, let's see, I'll pass these out. If you'll kind of pass them up and down and around. Uh, that's in here. If y'all could send some of those back, gentlemen. The, the problem about teaching a class on parables is like, so where do you start, uh, right? Where does, where do you begin? Let me ask y'all this: What are your favorite parables? As with those are going around, what are, what are your faves, anyone? And you can go from the hit list. That's okay. Um, 
Yeah, pro- yeah, pro- prodigal son, uh, certainly. And you know, one of the great things, actually, um, in Luke 15, there, if you remember, there are three successive parables, uh, and they all deal with lostness, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Um, and and that's something for us as we as we read through and as we think about parables, you know, certainly to see them in their context. What uh, I think uh, might have been Dorothy or someone else, I'm not sure, talked about how it's often, or maybe, I don't know, maybe Charles, one of our star students um, this morning, talks about how it's often sort of set beside something to shed light, uh, to shed light, to shed light on the bigger picture. So these stories are are, are not placed randomly. But yeah, lost. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, all of those are there together in Luke 15. What, any, any others, y'all? The rich young ruler. Yeah, rich, yeah, the rich, yeah, the rich young ruler. Um, are there any, uh, let me ask you this as we're, we're about to go into Luke 18 here. That's a parable. That's not a parable. That's just something that happened, isn't it? Yeah, it's something that happened. And actually, interestingly, um, one of the things it talks about with parables, um, the, 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 Greek word and, and the understanding of Jesus' day had a broader context um, than, than we think about parables. We think parables, we think simply a story, but it actually had a broader context and understanding. It almost, some of the sayings Jesus had, um, almost like the sort of the sayings or the, or the riddles or things uh, like, can, you know, can Satan cast out, uh, can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, some of the sayings would be included in that particular understanding as well, more so than just the stories and and quite frankly some of the actions Jesus Jesus I mentioned that story with Dr. Tucker Jesus often acted in parables uh, as well and the things and the things that he did were meant to, to shed light um, and and to convert as well so Luke 18 uh, this is uh, so as we look at parables uh, what we're going to look at today is the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, and again that's one of those that I think we probably feel like that's one that could fall into like I got that one right um, and not to say that not to say that we don't have a good understanding of it, but but to invite us to and this is a, a, a practice in scripture anyway, just to, to dwell in. And I'm often not good about this. I'm often, you know, I want to get to the next chapter um, or I want to finish my reading so I can go out and play. Um, you know, it's kind of like, all right, let me do this real quick so I can move on and, um, you know, so I can go outside. Um, but to invite us to sort of dwell on and to dwell in these parables and and to reflect over time to what it has to say to us so um the pharisee and the tax collector i tell you what let me um if someone um would actually read and this is 18 9 through 14 would someone please read that for us thank you Thank you, Forsyth. So one of the one of one of 
one of the great one of the one of the great ones. Um, and I and I thought this would be a great place for us to begin, as it really um, strikes to the heart of our understanding of of Christianity, our understanding of God uh, and the nature of God, and and also our understanding of ourselves uh, as well. Um, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God seems to think I need that lesson repeatedly. Um, so I, I seem to get you know, some, some fairly regular opportunities to reflect on that. Well, a couple of things. Um, this, by way of, of, of context, is kind of in the travel portion of Luke's gospel. And let me ask you a question as we sort of think about what is Jesus trying to communicate here? What type of action is he calling us to? What type of conversion uh, are we talking about here? When we talk about this falling in uh, the sort of travel portion of Luke's gospel, let me ask you this question. Where are they traveling to? And if you don't know, that's that's fine. Um, Jerusalem. They're, 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 they're traveling. They're, they're making their way. Um, they're making their way to Jerusalem. And in many ways, to some degree, um, in in all the in all of the gospels, um, they're they're making their way to Jerusalem. Uh, they're all making their way to Jerusalem, which is to say, they're making their way to the cross, uh, and and that through the cross and the resurrection, the the kingdom of God will break forth into the world. The uh, mercy uh, and forgiveness for sinners, restoration and reconciliation, the defeat uh, of of the devil and the powers of sin and death. They're, basically, they're all they're all heading to. Jerusalem. They're all heading to the cross, but but obviously, as they get closer um, to Jerusalem, as he gets closer to the cross, the the intensity and the hostility directed toward him increase, but also uh, the the urgency with which to communicate um, to his followers. And the, sometimes the parables are directed particularly toward a specific yes specific uh, group of people. Sometimes to uh, a, a general um, audience. Uh, what about this one? Do do we have any have any sort of indication who this is directed toward? And those who trusted in themselves are righteous. Exactly, and so that could be that could be Pharisees or sinners or middle of the roaders uh, to some degree. Yeah, he's he's speaking to us. Uh, he's speaking to us as 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 humans, uh, human nature. Uh, the 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 temptation from the very beginning, uh, going back to the fall, wanting to be equal, wanting to be equal to God, our, our desire to put our to put our trust um, in in ourselves, and and you know we we fall prey to it uh, again and again. We want, you know, everybody wants to be competent, right? Uh, everybody wants to exhibit mastery. Um, you know, I joke about my my son back in the day. I know, but I mean that's us as adults. I mean, how often do you say, you know what? I'm absolutely clueless on that matter. Um, it, it's not something we want to. We want to be people who are proficient, uh, who are sharp, who display a particular type of of mastery. And this is one of. Um, and Luke actually gives us a little preview. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt and so there's a there's there's a lot that we're going to have an opportunity to unpack and and apply here um, because a lot of people in Jesus time and our time we, we want to place our our trust in ourselves but also the other issue of human nature uh, of 
of self-righteousness, one of the big problems about self-righteousness, not only, of course, is it diluted, but what else does it do? Uh, it leads us to look at other people with contempt. Um, uh, another one of our human failings, another one of our human temptations, we want to put ourselves above other people. Uh, and basically, we want to we want to appease ourselves to say, you know what, I'm bad, but there are others that are worse. Um, uh, you know, uh, I feel a little better when I can find someone that's that's worse than me. Um, and so I think, well, maybe maybe I don't need that much work. Maybe I don't need that much change. Uh, maybe I don't need to reflect that deeply because I'm really decent. Um, I mean, I'm not as bad as X. A guy told a story one time. It was fantastic. It was at an Alpha conference. Alpha is a short course in Christianity, an introduction to Christianity, particularly for those who might be more skeptical. And he talked about they did an Alpha at their church, and this woman came, and he said he said he didn't outwardly, but he said inwardly, he said he, he looked down on her and judged her. She'd had a number of different children with a number of different partners, and you know it was kind of a mess. And uh, he said, you know, not outwardly, but he said he said inwardly, I judged her. Um, and he talked about her conversion, not only her conversion, but also her, her story. And, and when he discovered the various abuses and indignities that she had suffered throughout uh, her lifetime, he said, you know what, the fact that, that, that and she began to have a great ministry uh, and began to really reach people um, that, that they were not otherwise reaching. But he said this, and I remember this to this day, he said, you know, he said, when I thought about it, he, he said, I realized what a self-righteous jerk I was. He said, you know what? I was born on third base. Uh, I was born basically with all the advantages of life, um, opportunities, you know, parents who, who believed. And I'm, I'm patting myself on the back for what a great job I've done when I've been born on, for, on third base. And he said, you know what? The, the fact that she's made it to first base is a miracle of God. Um, just the, and as he told that story, I thought, you know what? That's me. Uh, and that's us, that, that self-righteousness that, that so easily seeps in. Well, let me, let's, let's go on here. So we have a contrast which Jesus has set up. And of course, you and I think of Pharisees, we, we tend to have a negative connotation, right? You tend to think Pharisees, you know, um, self-righteous, um, full of them, full of themselves. They're, they're legalists. They're not good people like you and me. Um, but, but to Jesus's audience, um, these, you know, they, they would have been, you know, these were respected people. Uh, and really, you know, at, at, at their best, um, the Pharisees were, were well-intentioned. They wanted change to be brought about uh, in the nation and for the people of Israel. They wanted God to move and to act. Um, they, they, you know, basically they wanted revival, uh, a lot of them. In many ways, I mean, they, they really were honest and earnest and sincere and wanting to know God and to, and to follow God and to honor God. Um, in their actions, and I say for many people, they were there weren't that many Pharisees, and they were often held, you know, they were respectable people, and people admired um, their their efforts to be faithful and, and bring about change. And so, as Jesus is telling this story, if we're his listeners of his day, we're thinking, all right, the Pharisees, the one I want to be like, um, and then the tax collectors, as y'all probably know, were loathed, not only because nobody likes a tax collector, but um, they were working with the enemy. Um, the tax collectors were often people from among them um, who worked for the Romans, uh, and they collected taxes for any number of things, and, and they also put whatever their fee was. That, it's basically, they set their own interest rates. They decided whatever their fee was that they were going to put on top. So they were hated. Not only they were tax collectors, but um, also they took additional above and beyond, and they were low. They were traders uh, is, is what they were. So you have this 
And everybody's like, I see where this is going. Uh, I, I see what you, I see what you have to say, Jesus. They both go uh, up to the temple um, to pray. And here's the thing that's that's interesting. Um, very likely, and for the hearer of Jesus' day, when it talks about they're going up to the temple to pray, very likely they would have thought at, at the time, either in the morning or in the afternoon, when sacrifices were made. Uh, that was at the time they went up to pray. So that that puts a whole level of detail and richness and significance that they would have likely gone at the time when sacrifice uh, was was being made um, on behalf uh, of the people. So they've gone up at this time uh, to make their prayers. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Uh, in, in many ways, he's, uh, some of the commentary on it said this is, um, could be looked at a number of, of ways. One is looking at Deuteronomy 26. Uh, and in Deuteronomy 26, it basically the people are encouraged to come and to bring their tithe to the Lord, to commit, uh, their, to commit themselves um, to the Lord um, and to a service and to ask for his mercy. So in some ways, one could say, well, he's just he's Deuteronomy 26ing there. Um, he's doing, but, but at the same time, that's used all the time. Um, but at the same time, he, he seems to be, uh, it seems to be much less about prayer to God and much more announcement about himself. Uh, in essence, it's, it's much more like he's praying to himself. Uh, he's praying to himself, you know, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, um, when you're perfect in every way. So he's there and he goes and he's, and he's, and he's praying, uh, to himself. But at the same time, people thought, you know what? That's a righteous, uh, that's a righteous dude, to quote Ferris Bueller. Um, you know, there, there, there he is. Um, and then, of course, the tax collector, uh, we hear, interestingly, um, the tax collector will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, uh, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, uh, a sinner. And then, of course, here comes the big twist. Uh, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's, I'll say this, I've, I've sort of run out of time, but I need to say this before we go, and we'll continue on with this and others next week. Um, there, there's an interesting thing that, that the hearer in Jesus' day would have heard um, in, in, the original, in the original language. Um, again, this is very likely happening at the time of uh, the offerings, and one of the things that the time of the offerings would have said is that we need offering made on our behalf. We're not sufficient um, unto ourselves. We need a sin offering that's offered um, on our behalf to take our place. And of course, in their minds also it would have been the Day of Atonement uh, when that great sacrifice was made, when the sins of the people were laid upon um, the, the sacrificial animal, the propitiatory um, animal uh, to identify, to take away um, their sins, but also in the original language, the tax collector, it's basically, all right, so you want to, um, it, it begins with God, and then we'll omit the middle for a minute, God, me a sinner, God, me a sinner. The, the tax collector gets the beginning point. There's God, uh, and there's me a sinner, uh, and, there's a, and there's a gap uh, between the two of us that, that, I can't, that I can't reconcile on my own. There's a gap that I can't bridge um, on my own. But actually, the, the word, the actual Greek word which is used here, 
is the word. Um, it's I could tell you the Greek word, but but it would do nothing for us. Uh, but basically, it's, uh, it it refers to the mercy seat. It refers to the mercy seat. This word, which is also used uh, in Hebrews 12, it's not the it's not the typical word for God have mercy on me. God be mercy seated toward me. Well, here's the significance of that. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, um, the the tablets of the law were placed inside, uh, and and on top of it was uh, were these angels with with curved wings, and and within that was sort of viewed, visioned as God's mercy seat, the place where where God sat. And uh, again, on the day of the atonement, the blood would be sprinkled um, on that. The recognition that we're people who stand in need of God's mercy. Um, we're, we're in relationship with God only because of his mercy uh, and not our ability to live up to the law, not our ability to measure up um, on our on our own. Uh, and so basically what the sinner says, and what the people would have heard during the time of sacrifice is saying, God, be mercy seated toward me. Um, Lord, uh, visit me um, with your mercy.